Hello and welcome to Man on the Cloud and Omnibus Sport Review. Today we're going to do a State of the Union for the Premier League as it's you know, essentially the end of the season. To put the Premier League into context, if you really want to explain what the Premier League is, what it stands for, or its future, its past, whichever bit you want to get into, focus on, is you have to work out the age that we're in. And in a sporting age, at the moment, we're in the Super Club or Super Parity. So, Super Clubs basically are, you know, you can name them. You've got Barca, Real, Paris Saint-Germain, Juventus. And you'd say, you can you know, pick your choice of which one of the, the English clubs. You'd probably say City, United, Chelsea. Those are really the, the, the super clubs, you know, across Europe. They're the ones that win the trophies. You know, Bayern Munich, obviously. They're the ones that are at the upper end of, you know, the Champions League. They're the teams that win the league, so on and so forth. Or you have super parity, which is basically things like the uh, A-League in Australia, the MLS in, in America. So where basically you either have these super clubs that you know, just dominate, that rise to the top because they have more fans, more money, more infrastructure, uh, you know, just, just have that power. And they've kind of, in effect, taken over the, the upper end of the Champions League. Now, with super parity, what you end up being is is that it's far more top-down. In other words, it doesn't allow any of one any one entity to get any bigger. <laughs> you, know, you might have a team that wins more. You might have a team that, in general, has bigger fans, like you say, say Seattle Sounders. But the actual structure of the league is such that no one can get too big. And the same thing, is to an extent, is true in the A-League, where basically the, the centre point of the, the league is... And these are because you're trying to keep the leagues going. In other words, in Australia and America, you've had leagues that failed. And you end get elements of sort of super parity in cricket and rugby, if you take, let's say, the county championship. In other words, <clears throat> since they allowed Durham in 92, that's it. The county championship, you, you had either the one county championship with all the teams in it, or you split them up into Division 1, Division 2. But there's nothing else. You can't move between them. In other words, there's no relegation in America. No relegation in Australia. So what you so what you have with, with the concept of the Super Club, and that's generally more of a European concept, is that each era has its own defining quality. So let's say you talk about the, the 60s and European football. It has some elements of what international football was in the early 20th century. So let's take an example, let's say something like the Copper America. So really what the Copper America comes from is you'd have a team in, you know, the best players in Montevideo in Uruguay, which basically would double up as the best team in Uruguay. Because really, in terms of the geography of Uruguay, you have a couple of main cities, Montevideo is the capital, and if you wanted to be good at football or wanted to get anywhere in football, eventually all roads would lead to Montevideo. So in other words, all of their talent was in one place. So you then took that talent, you made a team. That team would effectively be the de facto Uruguay national team. They weren't considered that, but then if they played someone from Argentina, you generally have some of the best players would be in Buenos Aires, and you'd go from there. 
And so that's kind of where the, the sort of seedling bits of international football would come from, which then sort of leads more... So eventually you, you created a system, so you had FIFA, you had the World Cup, and you'd have some concept of a national team. And then, obviously, it, and that was you know pretty much codified and as slowly but surely grew up, and now the World Cup is what it is. And Cup of America, African Cup of Nations, any other number of tournaments and European Championship. They all sort of come around about the same time in the sort of 50s and so on. <clears throat> and then what you have is you have national leagues and you have the sort of rise of the professional game. And eventually you have the concept of you start having friendlies. So a lot of the time there were midweek games, so it wasn't league fixtures. And a lot of the time there was a lot of friendlies in terms of money making and also because they have floodlights and so there was an element of glamour and so eventually you, you start having opposition teams come over like Santos the Brazilian team because they had Pele so that for years and years and years was just a, a major marketing sort of wheeze and then you have the teams from the eastern bloc countries and eventually someone sort of basically goes hang on because uh, it's a game between Homved of Hungary and Wolverhampton Wanderers so someone basically in the paper says, well, actually, you know, it's like a European championship. Then leads to the World Cup. So there's an element principle of what the European Cup is, is I wonder if our boys are better than the boys over there. And so it sort of culminates, let's say, in the 67 European Cup final, because you've got a team of Glaswegians, for the most part, most of them based, you know, within sort of a few miles of Celtic Park, Parkhead, couple of the other players were sort of a little bit further out, but no one within basically 20-30 miles. So really it was the best of Glasgow, because some of the players were Catholic, some of them were Protestant. And, you know, the best that, that Glasgow had playing against Inter. Now, Inter Milan were obviously a little bit more cosmopolitan, a little bit more sort of represented the whole of it. It wasn't as if every single player was basically Milan-based, because obviously the coach, um, Helenio Herrera, is it? I probably butchered the pronunciation, but anyway great Argentinian coach that sort of came up with some of the elements of Cantonacchio, the defensive sort of st structure. So it was very much our boys against their boys, who's going to be the best. But obviously, that wasn't going to last. And that's when, I think, in some ways, the European Cup was at its sort of heyday because the concept was so natural and straightforward. You had, you know, knockout ties, over two legs, it was just a straight cup competition. But obviously, eventually, you then start getting, you know, as society moves on. Because in other words, it it captures the '67 European Cup final captures when a, basically a nation just stopped. Everyone, you know, a lot, a huge amount of people in Scotland watched it. A huge amount of Scottish people travelled, even when travelling wouldn't have been straightforward, easy, and all the rest of it. And it had a meaning. In other words, could a British team really beat the defensive masters? of Inter Milan, you know, because the whole issue was is that the, the European Cup was originally basically won by uh, Real, Benfica, and, and the Italian club. So the team, and I think at the time they were basically called the Latin teams. And there was a concept that, was that they were just, in some ways they were, they were better suited to it. You know, it was Real Madrid with this huge monolith. They had Alfredo de Stefano, Frank Puskas. They were able to get all of these players in and, you know, Eusebio for Benfica, and all of these kind of advantages that a lot of British clubs at the time didn't have, to an extent. And they were able to dominate. Whereby the 60s, 
you don't really have a dominant team. Maybe in the later part of the 60s, you might say Man United, but at the same time, you could say in the early part Spurs. But most years, a different team wins the title. So there's no monolith team winning every single year, which you get sort of to an extent in Portugal, to an extent in Spain, and to an extent in Italy. And there isn't as much, I think, financial backing because some of the huge... And you, know, you get that in the 60s in Italy when they you know, start signing a lot of British players because they can offer them these fantastic wages. And at the time, you know, the Football League and English football in general and British football had a wage cap, so a wage limit. So basically, the Italian owners saw that they had, that they could basically spend a load of money, which they had, because <laughs> a lot of the big clubs were... So obviously you have Fiat with uh, Juventus. So all of these huge, you know, industrial families use their might to improve their teams by picking English players. So you got John Charles at Juventus. You had uh, Jimmy Greaves at AC Milan. Dennis Law at Torino, and so on and so forth. But eventually, that's not going to last. And so by the time you get to the, you know, the society moves on. In other words, you have, you know people start moving around more. So in other words, you start buying from different countries, you know, different people, you know, you have mixtures. And and people start moving between countries, all the rest of it. So as a result, it becomes less about, you know, your boys against ours. It becomes more around, you know, sort of organisation. So in other words, part of the reason why Liverpool wins so many European Cups, I've discussed this before, is that they have... One manager leads to the next manager, and that creates a sort of dynasty, and a, you know a kind of a way from which to win. And so, as a result, the sort of seventies, you have a lot of British teams being very successful. Seventies and early eighties, because English football had, in its terms of cup competition ethos, they're able to perform well, and to an extent, some of the the power structures that led, you know, the Madrid team of the 50s and 60s and the sort of Italian teams and the Portuguese, they're starting to crumble a little bit, which is where you end up with something like in the 80s where the Scottish teams were immensely successful in Europe <clears throat> in comparison with their, I suppose, if you compare it with this, the success of the Scottish national team in international tournaments, as in not very much, and the size of the country and all the rest of it. So you had teams like Dundee... Sorry, Dundee United, you have the success of Aberdeen. All of these little sort of bits and pieces really sort of come together to is so that the European Cup then moves on a little bit. So it becomes more, you know, you have you know the Santetian team that gets to the final. So it just it becomes more a little bit more egalitarian, a little bit more meritocratic. In other words, you really because the the way how the tournament works. The tournament originally worked because you had great teams because they won it every single year. They were in it every single year. They, you know, ergo they won. Once that starts to break down, once, you know, Atletico and Barca aren't as dominant in the 70s and 80s, what you have then is that it becomes more about... And because football, it's moving, but in a way that's a little bit slower. So in other words, yes, you're getting transfer fees. You're getting people moving from countries. There's... The bits of what we would now call globalisation are there, but not quite. So in the end, actually, what it comes down to is if you are well organised and you can win the league, you can then do well in a cup competition the next year. So you do have the situations where 
French teams are successful. You, know, you have you know teams like uh, Belgian teams, probably a little bit clo- more down the lines of the UEFA Cup. But that's it. In other words, if you have a really great team, because you can still generally get if you have a great if the Belgians have eight or nine great players and they all tend they all end up on Anderlecht, you've got a shot. You know the the Eastern Bloc teams have a shot because yeah you know, the difficulties of going away to there going over the Iron Curtain and all the rest of it. And you know the the British teams have their success because of the the style of football and the management that they have. But eventually, the the needle starts to go back to the the big teams, which is where you end up getting you know sort of Madrid come back in the nineties and and then in the sort of late nineties, early two thousand, you had the Galacticos because the money is now getting into. In other words, there wasn't a huge amount of money in, you know, the seventies and eighties. So in other words, the stadiums are crumbling. They're not particularly fantastic stadiums. You know, really, the only time the stadiums get better is more. It becomes more the World Cup becomes a, a really key driver of this. So, in other words, you know the stadiums in Spain are upgraded for the eighty-two World Cup. The stadiums in Italy in ninety, and that's in some ways a sort of a harbinger of the success that Italy Italian football has in you know, essentially the nineties. Because what happens is is that you know the sort of the rise of you know what the success they had in the sixties sort of revisits itself. In other words, you have a situation where you have all these beautiful stadiums, you've still got the big families, and because now you know, you've know you got the infrastructure in terms of the San Siro, the Deli Alpi, you know, the Olympic Stadium, they've all been sort of upgraded for the 90 World Cup. And because there's now, because it's becoming a bit more business-like, the, the sort of power of the Italian teams is coming back. You've got, you had Maradona at, from, at Napoli, and then... Because they have this money and the stadiums and the infrastructure and a bit more, I suppose, interest, global interest, because you start getting TV rights and all the rest of it. These big families want to show Italy off at, at its best, so they do start spending huge sort of transfer fees relative to what they are now. They're, they're quite small, but at the time, big money, and that money gets them somewhere. The the interesting thing is a lot of people talk about how important Serie A was, Serie A was in the nineties, and it was. But I don't think people really actually get into why it was. Okay, take, take who's you know, name the great teams of Italian football in the eighties, late eighties, early nineties. Well, you start with AC Milan under Rodrigo Sacchi and Fabio Capello. Oh, what what's the spine of their team? It's the Dutch players. So you've got Hullet, Van Basten, so on and so forth. Uh, who were their great city rivals? Inter. Well, what was their success based on? Well, a lot of it was the spot. It was, you know, they had the German players. So they had uh, Bremer, Jürgen Klinsmann, a couple of other players who were part of the t- German team that w- wins World Cup 90. But that's it. In other words, they, they've got... Sh- and, you know, Juventus spent a huge amount of money you know, on people players like Baggio, so on and so forth. But that's it. It is that. So in other words, Italy is a far and away better than everyone else because they're spending more money. They have better infrastructure because at the time, you, if you compare it to the Premier League, the Premier League's only just started in '92. The stadiums are all being redeveloped because of the Taylor Report. So there's a certain amount of upheat, dramatic upheaval. They're trying to get the league down because you know to twenty, so they have to you know 
change a few things with regards to the structure of the league and you know, how you get the, the how many teams you relegate, so on and so forth. So there's a lot going on. There's a sort of dramatic restructuring. Whereby Italy is at this point virtually at its zenith. So they've got the, the coaches, they've got the money behind them, they've got the television deals. Even if you don't, I'm sure Channel 4 didn't spend a huge amount of money, but they were getting a lot more coverage than any other European league was at that time. And as a result, because you know the, the te- Dutch team that won the 88 Euros, a lot of their players are based in Italy. The, the team that wins, you know, Italia 90, it's the Germ- a lot of the German team are playing in Italy. It kind of has that, it's a rolling stone. And, but a lot of it was based on money and foreign players. Well, what does that sound like? And uh, television money and, you know, l- and owners spending ridiculous amounts to compete with each other. Well, well what does that sound like? <laughs> That just sounds a lot like the Premier League. It, it, a lot of the criticisms that are labelled at it now. In other words, if you want to be a frontrunner, there's always going to be that element of you get a lot of the the pluses. So in other words, you get huge TV audiences, you get a lot of attention and all the rest of it. But as a result, there's a lot more focus on when things, the sort of the structural problems, the iniquities, the things that aren't right. In other words, you know, a lot of the money spent in Italy in the nineties. Some of it was completely wasted. A classic example was, I think, the uh, first ever player that was over £10 million in transfer fees. I think it was Gianluigi Lentini. He was a winger. They signed him from a mid-table Italian club. Winger, AC Milan. Got injured. Career completely fell apart. And all that money basically just went nowhere. <laughs> and, I mean, you can't not talk about Italian football... And not mention Berlusconi. Because he uses the media as a way to, you know, basically create a a political movement, a political party, and get himself up to the, you know, an international role. So, you know, being Prime Minister of Italy and then going out onto the world stage. And it's all, it's all interlinked. Much in the same way, if you look at, uh, I think, certain elements, people said, oh, well, French football team is sort of having a bit of a renaissance. And a lot of that comes down from the fact that you've, you've they've spent a load of money on the infrastructure side of it. So in other words, you've got Nice have a new stadium, the Stade Velodrome's been redone up, Lyon have a new stadium, and as a result, these clubs are really kicking on because they've now they're getting more money, you know, larger attendances, and that they're starting to whereby maybe five, six years ago, let's say if you look at the, the Lyon team that won, I think Nine nine league ones in a row. They were a fantastic team. You know, they even got as far as I believe the. They got to the semis of the Champions League because they end up with two French teams played against each other in the quarters. That's where I think Shamak scored, and Arsene Wenger took that as a sign to as a <sighs> mark of quality, and I think he regretted it ever since. As an aside, but. That team that won eight in a row, they, they weren't pro- trying to project that power out into European football. They just weren't anywhere near to that. And yet now, you you can see that they are spending quite a bit of money. They bought Memphis Depay for a huge amount of money from relatively to the League One. You've got Nice who have spent quite a bit of money in someone like Balotelli, who was a risk. And you know Frank McCourt, who used to own the Dodgers, 
is now taken over Marseille, and now they're trying to spend a huge amount of money to you know, reclaim their role in the sort of the French upper echelons. And you have Monaco with their Russian you know, billionaire, who I think is now just a millionaire from after his divorce, and you've got the you know the project that you know that is Paris Saint Germain, where they're using Middle Eastern you know money as a power play, soft power. And so some of that is based on the elements of stadium infrastructure, you know. But there are pluses and minuses to that. So in other words, you, the last few years, what you've had is just you know Paris Saint Germain being dominant, and it's taken a, a really fabulous Monaco team that have you know gone got all the way to the you know semis of the Champions League. Because and they're and they're they're using a, a really rich vein of talent that is currently in France at the moment, and you know and some very clever judicious scouting and that's something that Monaco have always as a club been good at and that's one that I think the f- most interesting things about their sort of resurrection is that when the the billionaire originally takes over he just wants to spend a huge amount of money and get them great again as as quick as humanly possible so he gets them promoted and then spends quite a bit of money on Radamel Falcao and Yao Matinho but eventually he gets divorced loses a, a decent amount of money as a result and decides that actually he's nowhere near to PSG and actually just scales back the spending scales back the wages and essentially, as a plan B, they decide that they're just going to scout brilliant young French players, buy them quite cheaply, pump up their value, and then sell them on. And so far, and it's worked better than anyone could have imagined because they've won the French League. But you have to remember, they've only won the French League by a handful of points. Even though they've scored all these goals, they've got to the semi-finals, they've played some fantastic football, and now the problem is, is that they're going to be essentially what fundamentally was asset strips. So it's going to be hard for anyone, because it's going to be hard whether they keep Leonardo Jardim. It's going to be really hard to think, well, can they you know, buy enough players using all this money they're going to get and create a team quick enough because you know that you know, the Qataris are going to spend a, you know, a hefty amount of money on PSG to get them back to the league title, to get them higher up the Champions League. I get the feeling that, you know, Monaco are going to be there or thereabouts, but I think it should be very difficult to try and replicate and buy because, firstly, the price is going to go up and the expectations going to go up to an extent. And there's really only so far you can take Monaco because the ground's quite small, because there isn't a huge amount of fans. There's always going to be a limit whereby with someone like Paris Saint-Germain and, to an extent, Marseille, there's a lot more, you know, fan power and you can and if you use it in the correct way they can get up and really go in effect go past what Monaco can do in other words Monaco no matter how good your scouting is no matter how much money it is eventually you, you sort of hit the buffers because you can't really compete year in year out with your Reals your Barces these super clubs because what they have is they can just buy, they can take your manager, they can take your players. That's something that, you know, you can probably compare it in a way to what's happened at Atletico. Now, the difference is, is that you've had in Spanish football, if you look at the sort of history behind it, you know, for 
you had sort of the late nineties where you, and the early two thousands when there was just a slight change. In other words, that it still wasn't quite what we what is now modern football. What you, we conceive it in terms of super clubs. You know, Real was still huge, but they were sort of. A lot of the time, they would. I think the classic example is when they won the European Cup but finished fifth. So as a result, theoretically, didn't actually qualify for the Champions League. But the Spanish FA, you know, obviously, and it, you can argue the whether it was unfair or not unfair, decided just to give the, the place to Real Madrid instead of the team that finished fourth. You can see the sort of logic behind it, but whether you agree with it or not, that's a personal call. But so in other words, they they were strong enough to win. Champions League, but weren't strong enough to maintain it in the league. So you have sort of Deportivo La Coruña win the title. You know the um, Valencia under Rafa the Gaffer have some success, but now the the sea change has happened, and this has happened all across the main European leagues in terms of finances. Is that you now those teams are not just winning because they're big, i.e. Madrid, Barcelona. They're monolithically successful in, in the sort of same vein of PSG, Bayern, you know, Juventus. They win every single year. You know, they might not win ten in a row, but they are you know, getting to the point of where it's six out of nine. And in the years, in other words, it takes something fantastical for that to change. In other words, uh, take Roma, for example. They have literally scored the most amount of goals they've ever scored, the most amount of points they've ever got in a season... And they're still four points behind Juve. <laughs> and, you know, as a result, you know, the manager's left. And that just shows you just... It, because now what you have is you have had the sports science. You've now got, you know, the, what the, the money that the Champions League brings you. And the difference between the haves and the have-nots has risen. Whereby in the 90s, you still... European football still has an element ethos of... I think growing up with European football, because the, the English teams weren't very successful until sort of the later 90s and middle of the 2000s, is that it was wonderfully exotic because you knew about all of these teams. So you knew about Bayern Munich, you knew about Real, Barca, but you'd never... And you might read about them in 4-4-2 or when Saturday comes, but you might even see the odd get highlights, but... When you saw a game on television, let's say the UEFA Cup or Champions League, this was the, be the first time you see these players and you would then be able to put a, a talent to, to a face. You're like, ah, that's what Ronaldinho can do. You knew he was good, but you'd never really, you didn't have YouTube that you could basically watch what he did. You just heard about it. You had rumours. Oh, well, we hear this year, like in the 90s, you'd hear, ah. Bayern are good this year, but then they'd get a British team and you'd actually see them. And there was that level of interest. In other words, you in other words, you would be able to watch Italian football on a Sunday on Channel 4. Like the odd games, you see the highlights. But then you'd always wonder, well, what would a Juve do against uh, a Barca? What would a Man United do against this lot? You know, and there was that interest. And I think what's happened now is, is that because you have these super clubs... And, uh, you know, the, they all seem to use the same sort of, you know, half dozen to ten managers. They all have very si a lot of similar ways of working. And 
and now because you know the finance is involved and because of the the ownership groups that they that all of these clubs have backing them as a result what you what what happens is, is that the same pl- players and teams are playing each other each year in other words Bayern have been knocked out by a, you know the same three spanish clubs year after year after year you know and so we, we now essentially know there's a pecking order. In other words, we know that PSG on a good day can beat an English club over two legs because they've done that to Chelsea. But they're, they're not probably good enough to beat a Real or a Barca over two legs. You know, they've come close a couple of times, but each time you know the Spanish club is able to, to get back and overturn them. So we know that... And you th- you would say that probably on the balance of play, Juve are maybe a little bit stronger than Bayern, but neither of those clubs are, pr- are quite as strong as Barca and Real. The English clubs at the moment are a little bit behind. A lot of them are going through sort of... You, I get the feeling in maybe three or four years, English clubs are going to be doing a lot better in the Champions League. But at the moment, they're, they're still retooling. They're not quite there where they were maybe five, ten years ago. Which is, you know, that happens. It's always sort of peaks and troughs. So, what that basically means is is that some of the interest is, is being sucked out of the Champions League because we've all seen the highlights. We've all seen them play each other enough in the group stages. It, it's not quite as romantical. And because you already know about Messi. You've seen Messi at World Cups. You've seen him on YouTube. You can't really... He's not new. If you see him in the Champions League, well... Yeah, it might be fun to see what he does against Arsenal, but you sort of already know what his strengths are because you know enough Arsenal players at some point would have played in a different European league and come up against him. You know there isn't quite that aura of difference. In other words, you don't. There, there are there's so much more information out there. As a result, there isn't quite as much mystery, which is in some ways sad, but you know that's the way. And so this is really where. The European Cup and Champions League is going to really have to change. They're going to have to do something to really take away the inbuilt advantages that all of these super clubs have. So instead of making it over two legs, which obviously benefits really the bigger clubs because they have two bites at it. In other words, you know, the PSG game is your classical one. They just got battered out in Paris, and if that had been a one-legged tie. That's it. PSG go through. Barca are unlucky. But that's it. That's the luck of the draw. But you have the second leg, which then sets up, you know, the banana, you know, the mental finish where PSG absolutely collapse, but Barca win. So, in some ways, this contextualising, really, when we get to the Premier League. In other words... There's pluses and minuses to it. So, the real question you have to ask yourself is, well, what do you, as a fan, really want from the Premier League? I, I hear so many different things from different people, but they all seem to have a, a fairly similar sort of point. And it's more of a lament than anything else. You know, about, you know, the, the, the wages... You know, the, I think the lack of loyalty and the, it seems to be the same teams winning. And it's, it's, you know, the size is essentially guaranteeing you that. And, that you know, it's, you know, in some ways that it, there just seems to be a lot of 
a lot of negativity that is attached to the Premier League. You know, because I think people focus on the lack of success in Europe, the lack of success for the national team, I suppose the, the youth issues. There's so many different... And a lot of them, they all seem to be wrapped up in, in a bundle of what people actually want is, you know, and ticket prices and any number of different kind of issues, you know, managers being sacked and play acting. They're all kind of bundled into the same thing. And I think probably if you want to get right down to the nub of it, it feels as if, you know, that the, the, I suppose even the pre, the early Premier League or the, the Football League of everyone's imagined sort of childhood seems a lot more accessible. Now it's inaccessible. It's more entertainment. It's more business. But okay. And uh, this comes down to a great point that you, that was made if you ever do like race relations in America. It's a bit left field, but what it is is that in the 1950s and 40s, they would have opinion, you know, opinion polls and surveys, and they would ask a, a cross-section of Americans, white Americans, whether they would vote for a black president. And, you know, as the generations go on from the 40s, 50s, 60s, you can see where it's trending in, in the direction. But the surprising thing is is that actually in, even in the 50s, 50 to, you know, between, I think between 45 to 55% of, of Americans in, the, in these polls were saying, yeah, they would have no problem voting for, you know, a black president. Now, the reality is, you take the 50s and segregation and all the issues that were happening across America and busing and all these kind of arguments and the you know, the institutional racism that was still there. Well, they were lying. They didn't want that one because there was no, you know, black candidates and the racism was still there and there was still a lot of anger. But the point was, even at that juncture, people didn't want to look as if they were racist when they were, you know, talking to this, you know, opinion person taking the opinion poll so to make this point is is that okay well if you want players uh, you know a league where the players are on wages that are comparable to you yours and mine if you want something with tradition and history you know where there's no large amounts of transfer fees there's player loyalty cheap tickets accessibility well, well, what are you just and you know where the whole country is involved? Well, you've literally just described the county championship. They have wages that are about the you know round about the same you know as you, you know the man on the street. They they live in the same local neighbourhoods that you do. The, the county championship has a huge tradition. So you you've got as I've said earlier, you have the two divisions. So it's always the same teams. There is you know an element of promotion and relegation. You know, players do stay for a lot longer than Premier League. There isn't anywhere near the level of transfer fees. You know, not only do they play in the big stadiums, they play in outgrounds all across the country. So in other words, you know, you'd be amazed how close there is always, usually somewhere in the country, an outground or a game of cricket that you are, you know, and it's cheap. And the players are far more accessible. But if you look at the amount of actual coverage of the county championship and attendance and all the rest, <clears throat> it's absolutely flatlined. You know, it is, you know, but that's it. If that's that's what you wanted, then we'd all be watching county championship. This podcast would be about the county championship. It's not even someone even when the county championship at the back end of last season was really interesting. It wasn't national attention, and even you could say the same thing to an extent about Premiership rugby. You know, where there's no, you know, there's no no play acting or the transfers aren't huge. 
But that's not what captures people's imagination. There is that disconnect between what the laments that people are saying in the media and on the street and what they're doing, which is actually watching the games. And still, you know, basically getting all of this information and all of this interest. And, you know, it's global interest as well. So, it then you then go on to really well, define you know, what the Premier League is. I mean, so I suppose they always say, oh, the best league in the world, or the most exciting. And so, well, okay, if you were going to define it by, let's say, the, the teams that... The, the, the top premiership teams and how they play in Europe. Well, if you're going to define it by that way, you'd say Spain. And I suppose if you're looking at money or global interest and all the rest of it, oh yeah, you'd say the Premier League. So in other words, they're not wrong answers, but it's more down the lines of what you're, what results you're looking for. So in other words, you know, the money men are saying money, global interest and all the rest of it. So yeah, the Premier League is, in terms of, TV rights in terms of TV audience. Yeah, they're right. And how big these clubs are in terms of the Deloitte football table. Okay, if you say that actually the the point of a league is to say how good are our boys and how do they do well on the continent, well, it, it's not that successful. It is Spain. But then, which teams in Spain have been winning the European Cup? Well, it's Barca or Real. When was the last time someone who wasn't Barca or Real win it? It's Atletico, the third biggest team. And okay, <clears throat> so they've done it, you know, with some, you know, they're now partly foreign owned. They're moving to away from their spiritual home to a new stadium halfway across town near the airport. And that's why people always have to say with that, say near the airport, because really what they're saying is, it's you know, it's a cash grab. They need a bigger stadium so they can get more money to you know, essentially establish themselves as the third amigo. In terms of, you know, dominating the Liga. And that's fine. And they, they're trying to break the cycle. But in reality, what they're trying to do then is to become a super club of their own. So that they always qualify for the Champions League. Which means you're always in the group stage. Which means you get the money, the escalators, and so on and so forth. And whereby they might have subverted it. The point is, is that they were the ones that were able to rise because they have a great history, because they have a huge fan base. There was room, basically, for Atletico to be, fill that role. There was a power of action underneath Barca and Real, which, if you were smart enough, if you had a great manager, which they have in you know, Diego Simeone, they were able to pick the right players. So, you know, some of their signings were very astute. And the way how they play football works as a great countermeasure against, you know, the... Real and Barca teams, which were always had brilliant attacking players, but the four four two, you know, or four one one, depending, you know, but the sort of def tight defensive lines and the way how he was able, you know, Simeone, it was brilliant. But in the end, that could only take you so far, which is why they're moving stadium, which is why they're getting foreign investment, why they're spending a bit more money in the transfer market, and so eventually, you you would expect that Simeone probably in the next eighteen months, twelve to eighteen months, probably going to leave. I'd assume maybe go back to Serie A, but possibly the Premier League. But so, what I would define it as is compare it with the other leagues. So, in other words, you've got these super clubs, and the super clubs in Spain are winning a lot of Champions Leagues. You've got the one super club in. Italy and Juventus, which have now hoovered up 
I think it's five or six Serie A titles in a row since you know they had Calcio probably when they got relegated, and they've now won three Italian cups in a row. First time that's ever happened. It's become very monolithic. You know, you, uh, the, one of the things that's about uh, Francesco Totti retiring, you know, at the weekend, was that he'd finished second for Roma nine times, and a lot of them have been in recent years. So, you know, it's as a league, it is not gratuitously interesting. And if you look at, you know, how the other teams are trying to deal with it. In other words, basically, Roma now have a foreign owner, Italian American James Pilotti. And he's trying to build a brand new stadium, a football-specific stadium for Roma. You've got foreign ownership at both Inter and AC, trying to spend a huge amount of money to push them back up into the Champions League and to compete with Juve. And AC are trying to possibly build their own you know, stadium away from the San Siro. So a lot of that. In other words, the only way that they can compete because Juve were the first outfit really to build their own soccer-specific stadium that wasn't, you know, state or county-owned. And so they've reaped the financial benefits of that and just astute ownership and all the rest of it. And just building away, so in other words, in terms of their youth structure, in terms of just hoovering up all the talent in Italian football from the smaller clubs, you know, and proceeding on that basis in other words really what all of the Italian teams are doing is following the premiership in other words the only way that they can compete with Juve is to do become like Juve and follow you know and just try and overspend so okay so you you've now seen that that's what Atletico have done to try and stay competitive in Spain that's what the big Italian clubs are doing you know, and I suppose the only team that you'd say outside of that that have competed against is Napoli. But then they, the problem is, is that do they have? Does De Laurentiis, their owner, have the money to to rebuild the their stadiums, the San Paolo? No, probably not. And a lot of you know they're they're very astute in the transfer market, but they've had to sell. And who did they sell their best striker? But who do they sell them to? Juve, and that's you know possibly part of the different you know, and that's establishing you know why you know Napoli can't really compete. And this is and that happens same sort of thing, similar thing happened to Dortmund in Germany. The problem was is that they aren't able to you know the closer that they got to Bayern, the more likely they were to actually lose all their best players to Bayern, which is part of the, almost the reason in a way why. Klopp leaves because in the end he just keeps butting against this wall. No matter how good he gets, he then has to lose all of his best players to Bayern, and then start all over again. And eventually, you know, I, I can see why moving to Liverpool would then become you know because he just runs out of steam. So, what what the Premier League has that. And even if you look at sort of Monaco, as we've mentioned, you know the way how they've competed with PSG has lots of, you know, it has a foreign owner pumping in money. But okay, it's maybe not the the, the shattering money that he's originally spent when they were literally a League Two team. But that, there's still some of that is there. They still have Matinho. They still had uh, Falcao, and but in other words, instead of 
competing, so you couldn't really compete financially with PSG, but you could where they could outspend them and where they put more money in than probably any other outfit does is in the scouting side of it. Because really what, what you have with PSG is because they spent all this money on Verratti and all of these, you know, and yeah they, they spent a huge amount of money in terms of assembling this team and it, the idea was is that they were plug and play players in other words you buy you, know, you get Zlatan in you plug him straight in and he will just score a load of goals the same thing with Angel de Maria you know Edison Cavani that's the idea you you basically have the money you buy the players and one of the interesting things is is that actually PSG have lost quite a lot of talent that have just never been able to get in the team so um, Kingsley come on couldn't get in and so eventually he goes to Juve doesn't get in Juve finally sort of makes some form of a breakthrough at Bayern Sacco is a similar thing, makes a few appearances, but he gets pushed out because they signed very experienced, very expensive centre-halves in uh, David Luiz. He ends up going. and So what you have is you have a pattern that essentially you have you know, to become a super club in these kind of very tight leagues. And what you have to remember with Italy is they've only got three Champions League spots. So in other words... It's Juve get the you know the champions because that's what they've done for the last five six years. Rover at the time of the second team, and it's the team that finished third. But you've got the playoff. In other words, the similar things happening in Spain. So you've got the three, you know. So basically the two Madrids and Barca. They usually get the top three places, and the fourth is the you know. There's a bit of a vacuum, but even that is not a guaranteed Champions League playoff spot. But yeah, that's it. You just get in the playoff. So if you lose the playoff. Eh, that's it, you, you don't go anywhere. <laughs> and so, as a result, you'd think, naturally, that the team that finished fourth in Spain, probably, if there was a power vacuum, that should be Seville, shouldn't it, really? I mean, you think about it. They won, you know, a load of Europa Leagues. You know, they had Monchi, their genius sporting director. They had Unai Emery. They had, a, you know, they had all the bits and pieces. So they'd had European success. They would have an element of domestic success. If anyone was going to turn it into four top teams, it should be Seville. But if you look at what Seville have done, they haven't done. In fact, they've actually gone the other way. They've actually said, well, actually, for us, I remember a couple of years ago when the, the last time they won, they ended up finishing fifth. Despite the fact that they could have eased, quite easily finished fourth, but by the end of the season they decided to focus on the Europa League and they beat Liverpool. Now at the time, speaking as a you know, Spurs fan, I thought that was mental. Is that you always go for the the fourth Champions League spot because then you can grow. But then you realise that there isn't really the money in Seville to redevelop the stadium. There isn't really a need for redevelopment. In other words, yes, you could you know rebuild the stadium, but that's all build a new one but that's three four hundred million pounds which they just don't have or the ownership isn't really has the will to do it because you, you, what you see is look at Valencia the, the other team that you would probably say had the most chance of breaking into and being someone who could at some point compete with the big three but then they've ran out of money they play at the Mestalla they have the, the, the shell of the Mestalla too which they stopped building halfway through because they just ran out of money. And that's pretty much what Sevilla are trying to, Sevilla are trying to 
avoid. And you respect that. But in the end, really what they're saying is, is that actually we can be a big fish in the Europa League pond and we're more often than not, whereby if we go into the Champions League, well, they got knocked out. You know, they should have beaten Leicester, but they got duffed up, really. But that was it. In other words, even if they had have beaten Leicester, they'd have played Atletico and you'd probably fancy Atletico to go through. And as a result, no matter, it, I mean, even this season, they they've sort of, at one point you you thought they might have a shot at competing for the title, but they fell away, and they fell away, you know, relatively tamely after the getting duffed up by Leicester. But by this point, they've now lost, you know, Emery. He's gone to PSG because PSG is a super club. They're the ones that you could get through to a, a semis or a Champions League final because that's what the ownership want more than anything else. And Monchi is now left as well. So you've left a, a huge kind of in a basically space of less than a year. You've lost the the architect and you've lost the manager, and that's a huge loss. And you know, the problem is is that if they go along the lines of of like of Monaco, you know, by really investing in young players, the problem is if they do too well, then they will be signed by Barca and Real. So take Rakitic, Dani Alves. So they've, uh, and I respect what Monchi did. He he focused more on buying some more experienced players. So like Samir Al Nasri, brought a few different players in, and again they had a really successful year. Relatively, they qualified for the Champions League, but as a result, those players are, are aging. So they, there's only a limit. You know, there's a limited ceiling on them. So in other words, yes, they can finish fourth, but are they likely to get out the, the qualifying groups of the Champions League? Possibly not, depending on what pot they're in. But that's it, they, they're not in any position to compete with the Super Cups. Which then leads us really sort of back to where the Premier League is. Now, you don't... When I spoke earlier saying about Super Clubs, I wasn't sure. I mean, I said Man City, but then well, they've only got to one Champions League semi-final... Only won the league a couple of times. You, okay, so but you, they're trying. So in other words, by spending the money they spent, you know the infrastructure that they spent, you know, getting Pep Guardiola. They're obviously that's where you know Abu Dhabi and that ownership group wants to put put them squarely there. Chelsea and you know, Man United in terms of its history, but they're rebuilding. Yes, they've got into the Champions League, but they've got more. <laughs> You know, they're at least, you'd say, a couple of years away from really re-establishing themselves back as a super club because they've missed the Champions League. You know, they're a lot closer to AC and Inter in terms of, yes, they've had to change owner. They've had, well, sorry, they've had an ownership change. They've lost Ferguson and they've, they've rebuilt. They've had to spend a huge amount of money doing so, which shows you that they have the potential in terms of the size. Yes, they are a super club, but... In terms of this very specific definition of super club, no, because they keep missing the Champions League, the football they're playing. You know, essentially they're trying to just buy their way back in, and they've had to go through the back door of winning the Europa League. You say Liverpool, not at the moment in size, in terms of history, yes, but you know, again, they they haven't qualified for the Champions League, so they're not in. Whereby, for to be a real super club, you have to qualify every single year. Guaranteed in the top three, missing out on the playoff. 
to really count. And you have to be winning leagues more often than not. Again, they haven't won the league since, you know, Dalgleish. So really, you're left. Arsenal, well, Arsenal haven't, you know, they've missed out on the, you know, they haven't won the league. Haven't really, haven't got out of the group stages in a lot of years. Sorry, haven't got out of the past the second round in a lot of years. Spurs, you know, again, building a stadium, trying to get close to there, but no, you wouldn't put them in there. So really, you've, you've got Chelsea, and even that has had some perils and pratfalls. But in terms of where they're trending, having now won the league twice in the last three years, you know, under Mourinho in his first year, they got to a Champions League semi, they're there or thereabouts. They're probably, you know, in terms of, they're probably on the outer edges. They're sort of like the PSG kind of level. Which, if you think about it, the last two times they've last time they won a Champions League title was against PSG. The last time they were in the Champions League, they lost to PSG. That kind of has a nice sort of symmetry to it. But they have the potential because now they've got the the you've got the, the youth structure. They've spent a huge amount of money on. They've got the manager in Conte. They've got the you know the, the sort of spine of a team because if you think about it, you know a lot of teams are interested. A lot of other super clubs are interested in Courtois, Hazard. You know, there's some lingering interest from Atletico in terms of Diego Costa, and they're going to spend a huge amount. They, you know, they've got a quite a large budget in terms of transfer fees. They're, 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 they're probably the closest thing England has to a super club by that definition. So what that, but that, that, that's the interesting thing. So you've really got five or six. You know, you've got six Premier League clubs. You could probably add Everton as a seventh, even though they're they're ten, fifteen points behind. But if you look at it. All of those teams are competing. They're not civilling it up. So, in other words, Man United won the Europa League not because they wanted to win the Europa League, because that was the only way. They, if they were fourth, they would have just and they were holding on by the skin of their teeth. They'd have punted the Europa League in March, April time. They just would have done it. Wouldn't have been. You know, you wouldn't risk it because you end up with what Liverpool had was where, you know, at half-time, they're in the Champions League, they just won a European trophy. Happy days. And then, you know, 40, you know 10, 15 minutes later, they've lost the final. They've, you know, torpedoed their league's, you know, form. And they're completely out of Europe. And that's it. So, I mean, yes, you know, as I've previously said, you know, Liverpool, in a way, going for the Europa League was... Yes, it was a way to get into the Champions League, but it was also a way for their fans to get a trophy and for Klopp to get a trophy. So that's more close to the Sevilla concept of why we're in the Europa League. It's, you know, in other words, you get the feeling that Klopp would have gone for it last year, even if it hadn't offered Champions League, because he just wanted a trophy, the fans wanted a trophy. That's the decision-making they're making. Yes, on some points they want to be a super club, they have that history, but you know they're quite... They're, they are content to win League Cups, they are content to win FA Cups and Europa Leagues if they can't. Whereby, if you take, let's say, Spurs fans, who you would think, more traditionally, would be up for the Cup because of their long Cup history, the way how they saw they see the Europa League was that they saw them in the Europa League and losing Mep, Bale, Modric, Berbatov, Carrick to an extent. So as a result... For them, even winning the Europa League doesn't bring any of those players back, and doesn't get that you know disappointment of you know knowing that if you've just gone for the league that you might well because we you kept they kept on having those you know last day where Arsenal would do just enough to get past. So the Europa League 
so really for Spurs because they saw these you know their fans this is where I, when I talk about fan power and is that it, it does have a, a it has an impact so in other words if the Spurs, if Spurs fans had filled White Hart Lane for every single Europa League game and the atmosphere had been amazing it would have had an impact and I think if the fans had sat there and given the players hard time when they got knocked out of the Europa League there was disappointment, but it was mild disappointment. It's like, actually, we can just go back to the league and hopefully finish fourth. In other words, if you offered a Spurs fan, well, you can finish fifth, win the Europa League a couple of years ago before it was a Champions League spot, or finish fourth, they'd, they'd take fourth. I would take fourth. And in a way, that has its own psychological subtext to it. In other words, I should, as a fan, be sitting there going, oh, actually, I want trophies and you know, going to the final and all the rest of it. But... In terms of, because we're not living in a super parity world. So in other words, if you wanted a super parity... So you, if you talk about MLS, and you talk about A-League, and other sort of leagues or structures. So in other words, like American sports. So you talk about uh, Major League Baseball, NBA, American football. Where they're all set leagues. So in other words, you have the same amount of teams. Yes, you have... You can sometimes have new teams added or teams move, but basically the structure stays the same. So in other words, there's always going to be a New York Yankees in Major League Baseball. You're always going to have you know the Boston Celtics in the NBA. There's a sort of logic to it. So in other words, then you have things like you know wage caps, salary caps. You know you have drafts. So basically, ways and means to foster some form of So in other words, because there isn't promotion and relegation, and because there you know certain locales. So in other words, if you're in New York, you have you know a bigger market than Memphis. So in other words, the the way how to try and counteract the the natural rise to the top of the biggest, the powerfulest, you know that's what they do. So. If you want that, and if that possibly is where the Champions League may end up going eventually, whereby you, you have elements of which to try and take European football back to what it used to be, which is where, I suppose, the, the best way of looking at it in, in certain respects is WWF. So a lot of people just cannot get their heads around wrestling and a lot of them are, are are sort of more traditional sports fans or people who just aren't sports fans in general so if you ask my mom like well why are you watching this it's all fake and she is perfectly right but what it is and this is what makes wwf so interesting it's why it's fake because the idea is is that they're scripting it. So in other words, they know that people enjoy wrestling. And so what they do is they try and make that the best product. So if you just left wrestling to its own, it would look a lot more like Greco-Roman wrestling in the Olympics. Which is very skillful and very... But that's it. They're just two men in trunks. Just battling. But that gets you X amount of viewers. and there's But a lot of it is more focused on the... The tactics and the styles. It doesn't fill out an arena. What fills out an arena is people doing wrestling moves. You know, with all the technical you know specifics of it. And the fantastic athleticism. But what it is, is creating people that are 
heels that are heroes and a storyline that gets you wrapped up in it. And that's what's made you know, WWF a huge billion you know, dollar industry. And which is why you have things like playoffs. In other words, playoffs are just ways to make it more interesting. In other words, if you just had the top three in the championship go up, the battle between third and fourth could be quite interesting if they're close. If there's ten points gap whereby if you have three really good clubs and everyone else is a bit pony, the league's done. In other words, there's nothing to keep you interested. So it's a way of jimmying it. And this is where Champions League is more super club centred. In other words, because it's UEFA's great money maker, as well as the champion you know, the European Championship. The problem is you can't run the European Championship more than four times a year, you know, every four years. All you're left with is the Champions League. And you know, the outside money, the TV money, the sponsorship is really sort of dependent on the super club. All being there. Much in the same way like in cricket when they had to jimmy the World Cup because when Pakistan and India both got knocked out in the group stages, the TV, you know, just the, the sponsorship, the viewership numbers went through the, just through the floor. And as a result, they just, you know, the ICC basically cannot afford to have that ever happen again. In other words, that's why you need a way of getting Pakistan, well, India more than Pakistan, but getting both of those teams basically to play each other and getting them into the quarters is just absolutely, and also it is just paramount. You, you, know, you can live with England being knocked out in the group stages. Yes, there'll be a financial, but that's a few million either way. Yeah, that you can live with. If you lose seventy-five million because India got knocked out really early, that's a huge chunk of revenue. So really, what you've got now is is that you're not going to get rid of these super clubs. Their their stadiums are too big. Their ownership model. What you have to now do is to find a way, basically, to get the wonder back into it, the interest. So in other words, you're probably going to have to try and find ways of making either a league in in of itself or a, a real cup competition where actually it's... I think this is the thing because you've had... And the idea of the seeding, I can see the coefficient, it's trying to be fair, but you're now living in a world of analytics where it's fundamentally unfair. In other words, the only way that you can... So in other in all of these leagues, you just you know if you take one of the, I think the interesting ones is really dealing with the the German league. You, we'll take that as a case study, right? So if you basically look at some of the advantages. You've got this amazing fan culture. So you've got you know the the yellow wall at the Westfalen Stadion. You've got the it's sort of an element of meritocracy in the middle. So you've had Hoffenheim who have got promoted and then gone to Europe. And now we're in the Champions League. You've had Mines, you know, who've created Thomas Tuchel, who've gone Jürgen Klopp. They've now qualified for you. You know, they're able to qualify for Europe, and they're unfashionable, quite small, middling German clubs. And so they've had homegrown players, homegrown managers. You know, and that's been part of a successful youth system and a successful national team. It's cheap tickets, fact, you know. And there's so many things that look completely the opposite to the Premier League in certain respects. But then there's the flip side of it, the, the disadvantages. So you've got, there is fan violence, there's ultras, then you have problems. You've had a lot of attacks this year on um, 
Red Bull Leipzig, <laughs> RB Leipzig, who you know, and the, you know, there's an element of hypocrisy. So in other words, for lots for years, the German league was is dominated by teams in what was once West Germany. There's only been a handful of you know East European East German teams who've got into who got into the the top division. And they never lasted long. They were small. They played in crumbling stadiums. Didn't have a huge fan base. They just weren't competitive in the Bundesliga. They weren't even, to be fair, particularly competitive in Bundesliga 2. So there's an element of hypocrisy, which is part of a, a sort of a wider issue between you know, the gap, economic gap between West Germany and East Germany. So you've then had... RB Leipzig, which come, covers both. So in other words, it's a corporate franchise. It's a fifth division team. And you have to remember that in Germany, the fifth division is nowhere like it. You can't compare it with, let's say, the conference or League 1 or League 2. It's just, it's a lot more regionalised. It's just smaller in scale. So they pick up this team, they rename it, pump a load of money in. Within a few years, they're, you know, they're now up and they've just qualified for the Champions League, and you know, probably yeah, and they're the ones who essentially gave Bayern the, a run for their money. But the thing is, they're owned by Red Bull. They're entirely corporate. They spent a load, a huge amount of money. But the interesting thing is, is that as a result, basically the fans in Leipzig don't care. They've now got a successful team that is competitive with the rest of Germany in a. Brand spanking new stadium with young, talented players, intelligent managers. They're going somewhere. You know, it was you know it wasn't going to happen unless it happened in this way. So they don't care, and they've just reinvigorated a part of German football that was wasn't going anywhere. But of course, it still has problems, and but there's still links. It's still basically a sort of an almost Premiership model. It's a foreign owner pumping in a load of money, and Really, you know, the success has come in effect a little bit. Is just a bit in front of where the fan interest is. I don't, in any way, shape, or form, criticize anyone in the Leipzig area for supporting RB Leipzig. I get it, but that's it. In a sect, basically, it wasn't as if you had thirty thousand people there, and you then created the club. What you have is you've created the club and the 30,000 people have come. It's a bit chicken and egg, but, you know, of course, if you have a successful team, people will come. If you don't have a successful team, you know, it's hard to have them in the first place. So I, I'm not going to criticise in that deeper sense, but, you know, there, there's ethical guidelines to it. Because really, they're trying to sell Red Bull <laughs> at the end of it. You know, the fact that they've reinvigorated, you know, the... East German football, that's really an afterthought. That's because they weren't really able to get... Yeah, they, they circumnavigated the rules in a way and used the fact that their money would go further in the lower German leagues and to an extent in the Bundesliga than it would if you tried to do that in England or if you tried to possibly do that in, in Italy. Because there isn't so many areas in Italy or so many teams that have th that level of support that was just bubbling under you know it was they were a put in other if you had to put a franchise into germany that's probably where you'd have put it and that's where they put it and so it's worked 
So what is the downside then of all these meritocratic teams like Hoffenheim, Mainz, et al, who've done well? What's bad about it? Well, what, you've, what you have is, is that it's not just them, it's because you've got Munich, who are just dominant. In effect, you can effectively call them a proxy club Germany. So in other words, it's, it's almost as if, you know, it's the old, you can redo the saying, is it? Strong Bayern, strong Germany. <laughs> They're dominant, they have a huge fan base, and, you know, and within the country and externally in that the other teams don't can't really compete with. So the, the squeezed upper echelons, the upper class. So if you look at it, you've got Leverkusen, Wolfsburg, Hamburg, Dortmund and Schalke. Well, what's the link? Well, look at the new... All of those outfits pretty much have new stadiums. Well, that's, you know, what's that a legacy of? Well, that's the 2006 World Cup infrastructure spending. So all of these clubs are in some way, shape or form have had success. So Wolfsburg have won the league, Leverkusen have done well in Europe... A few times, you know, Schalke have done well. You know, they've won things in Europe. Dortmund have done really well, but the problem is, is that they, it's similar to what France is going through now, is that they have these new stadiums. So there's more impetus. They've got more, and you know, the the greatest success of the German league, coming from the low point of when the Curse Media Group went done under and a lot of German clubs, specifically Dortmund, were in financial hell and they had to recreate it and they were able to do that because the German national team wasn't doing so well. So they were able just basically to go back to the drawing board. And they were able to do that more than the Premier League could because essentially there there was no money from TV. So there was no and this is the early two thousands, there wasn't as much outside so in other words there wasn't a bunch of foreign investment groups looking to buy German teams and kick them on. So, and there was more centralisation because the Bundesliga is only really full... I think it's about 60 years old, give or take. So in other words, there, there, was, more, there was more scope to cha- making these changes. So in other words, they had more focus on homegrown players. It's because they didn't have the money and because there is a strong, a much stronger... The German FA has a lot more control over football and what to do. So in other words, when they tell the football clubs, you will do this amount of, spend this amount of money on youth football, you spend this amount of money, and you will have X amount of players, and you will do it this way, and we will centralise a lot of it. The German clubs said yes. And that's created a really fantastic... And they've invested. And they've done it a lot better than the FA. But then the German have a lot more... FA had a, have a lot more control in general, and they weren't, there wasn't as many pressure groups, there wasn't as many interests floating around German football at that time than there would if you tried to do something similar in the Premier League now. There isn't as many interests, and those people weren't in a position, and a lot of the, the, the stakeholders just weren't in a position to compete. So what, the reason there are reasons why, like Schalke, Hamburg, Leverkusen and Wolfsburg have all had poor seasons this year. Because, in effect, not only are they they're pressurised to kick on and get into the Champions League, where this money is, and where you know the interest lies, and where the potential is, is that they're also trying to compete with Bayern. So they're spending money, but they, they are, I wouldn't say recklessly spending, but what it means is, is that you, it's not just competing against each other, you're competing against Leviathan, and mini-Leviathan in Dortmund. Because they're the two biggest clubs, and they have advantages that the rest of them don't, you, you can't aspire to. They have potential. So Schalke have potential. Hamburg have potential. 
maybe Kuzan and Morseburg to a lesser extent, but and so that the pressure is that much harder because there's even less scope because it's not just that you're you know it's almost impossible now with the way how super clubs and the Champions League is set. It's it's almost impossible to compete, but even getting into the Champions League and competing against all the other super clubs and all the other big Premier League teams and some of the bigger La Liga teams, it's very difficult. And they're finding it very difficult. So in other words, you know, with Wolfsburg, the problems they've had, they've just won a relegation playoff to stay in the Bundesliga. The problems with VW, VW's you know, financial problems because they put a load of money into Wolfsburg has led, you know, the budgets are being cut, so they don't have as much money. You know, the problems with Schalke is that they've got this pressure to try and match Dortmund, to try and match Bayern. And it's very difficult. They're just not quite as big. And, you know, it, and so the thing is, they're trying to compete at that level and trying to establish themselves in the Champions League and things like that and, and the upper ends of the Europa League. Whereby Hoffenheim and Mainz don't have that problem. They can, they're just happy to be there because they know full well that they can't compete with Bayern. They can't really compete with Dortmund. And at the moment, with the money Leipzig are spending, they can't really compete with them either. You know, because Leipzig have all the freshness. Is that they've been able to hire experts, and they don't, you know, because they've come from nowhere. There's a blank slate, so they've had advantage, and that's sort of what Mines and Hoffenheim have. So they've they would been lucky, you know. Mines have been lucky enough to have Tuchel and Klopp, two great young managers that have come through, and as a result, because they're they're a lot more clear, because there's not as much pressure, they've been able to do quite well because they're just looking to steadily grow, which is what Dortmund, Hamburg, <laughs> Wolfsburg, Leverkusen. You know, Schalke, they don't have that. They are under pressure by their fans to get to the Champions League, to establish themselves there. So they're having to really push and, in a way, you know, make big signings because the fans, because the economic pressures are there, which is not the same. In other words, Hoffenheim in a few years and Mainz in a few years, you know, are just a mid table in the German League. They'll bank the money, and, you know, that was just a happy. Whereby, if Schalke miss out, then, you know, you, the manager does have to, to go. Or, you know, you have to buy new players or sell players. And so that that pressure is always contingent. And that, that some way explains it. So, in, in that respect, what you have in the Premier League with the great managers that they have, with the, the competitiveness of it, where you've had a Leicester, where you've had a few years ago where Liverpool competed for a title, where you've had Tottenham compete for a title. They, they, none of you know, only Leicester won, and yes, there was elements of, you know, just, you know, every single league has it where someone wins out of nowhere. I mean, you, you had it in Italy with Hellas Verona in the 80s, playing, to, you know, Deputy La Coruña to an extent. There's scope for that to happen every other kind of generation as such. But what you have in English football is, is that by not really having a super club, what you've had is six... I'm trying to think of what, what you would call... They're not quite a super club, but they're clearly big stature. I suppose you would... I suppose... It, so yeah, maybe you'd call them silver clubs. If, so if you've got the gold standard as, you know, the team, you know, the three Spanish teams, PSG, Bayern, Juve. 
So, you know, that kind of gold level. And if you then said silver level, you would put, I suppose, Dortmund, you know, you then Man U, you know, the, the sort of five, five, you know, the six English clubs, you know, you could put Roma in there and possibly you could put Benfica in there and maybe a couple of the, yeah, maybe a couple of the, the Russian teams. It's that on Porto. And you could probably have, yeah, you, know, you probably maybe say Porto's a more bronze standard, but. So, and in some ways, what the Premier League is doing, because you can't really compete with Bayern and Real, or if you wanted to compete with them, what you would have to do is you'd have to, in effect, mimic parts of the German system, which basically says, well, we're quite happy for Bayern to buy all their, you know, buy, whenever Dortmund get good, buy some of their players. We're quite happy to have you know them win the league virtually year in year out, and so they are the German contender pretty much for the Champions League. Dortmund on a good year if everything works. If it doesn't, they're there or there. They're just in the Champions League. And I don't think that's what the fans want. I don't think that's what people on the street want. One of the things is is that that has propelled, you know. Barca and Real in the post two thousand era, which is. You know, analytics, super clubs, and all the rest of it, and globalization, is that they were collecting all of the TV money. It wasn't distributed fairly, which is what it is in the Premier League. The Premier League says, yes, we know that you know the big clubs will get more money, but we also everyone gets a fair shake at it. And so, as a result, they're not competing. But what the Premier League, I think, is good at, and this is what you know, going back to you know. Where we start with when we say what we actually want. If you think about it, there's an obsession with oh, why aren't there more Premier League players in the um, oh, when they ever go for the best European players? Yeah, they always have the shortlist for like the Ballon d'Or. And there's usually not that many Premier League because I think some of it is you know a certain amount of snobbishness. But then you think, well, okay, yeah, but Bale's on there and uh, Suarez is on there and Cristiano Ronaldo. It's like, well, where did all three of those players you know? Make their names. It's all in the Premier League. I don't think there's... What the Premier League doesn't do, and probably never may not do for another five, ten years with the way how super clubs are working, is they're not go you're not going to have what Italian football had in the 90s, where you had all of the world's best players seemingly all in one place. What the, what the Premier League does brilliantly well is to scour the world and find players and then turn them into what then becomes people who then sort of move on. So in other words, if, you know, at some point you could imagine a world in which Real just put an idiot amount of money on the table and try and get Hazard. So Hazard comes from Lille, you know, for £32 million, and it takes a few years, and then he gets up to the level where now, and the same thing you can say about Coutinho, you know, he was at Inter, didn't really work out there, had to go on loan to Espanyol, Manager at the time was a young Maurizio Pochettino, ironically enough. Goes to Liverpool, sets himself up, and now people are thinking, well, yeah, he could go to Bayern. Similar thing, sort of Deli Alley. What the Premier League does, and that's what is good. Or they pick people that, in some ways, haven't had a you know haven't quite worked out. You know, Zola in Italian football. In other words, he's at Palma doing really well, but none of the big clubs showed that much interest which allowed him then to go to Chelsea and then become a legend you know so you have I think the way how the Premier League works in that it's inner competitiveness in a 
and the, the fact that English football in success in Europe is always peaks and troughs. So you have the sort of the seventies and the early eighties, and obviously you have the outside factor of the high school ban, and you know the reorganisation which own of the Premier League and the changes and the, the fact that the Premier League is the global league because English is the global language. So in other words, whereby Italian football was fantastic in the 90s and elements, you know, and their parts of the upper end of the Spanish league is probably the best football played on earth in terms of the, the sheer level players and success and all the rest of it. You know, you can include that in Seville winning all the... You know, this success that Spanish teams have had, monolithic Spanish success in European football. But what that was predicated on was a system which, you know, inequality, which meant that just the middle part of the Spanish Premier League, they're, small, they're smaller clubs. They're, you know, they just don't have the facilities or even the, the ways and means to really get better, whereby someone like a Leicester did. If you look at... If you look at the football infrastructure in terms of the football league and you know, non-league in this country is astounding how deep it goes and how many... You, know, you can have a situation where someone like a Darlington, who are in, sort of, I think, the 7th division, have a 20,000-seat stadium, a brand-new 20,000-seat stadium. Of course, it was due to incompetence that they ended up in that position, but it's still some a feat to behold that you have a, a Tramir who missed out on promotion to the Football League who 5, 10, 15 years ago were in cup finals and competing to get into the Premier League. Is that kind of depth, which is special, which doesn't get mentioned when people talk about you know the Premier League and all the rest of it, and English football in general. So I don't, you know, I think English football will have periods of success in Europe, you know, the 80s, the 70s, the, the mid-2000s. There, there is always that chance that when English clubs get it right, they can have success in Europe. But it's not going to be monolithic because you, you don't have super clubs. You have silver clubs. But silver clubs mean that for them to win, everything has to go right, which is what happens to Liverpool when Gerrard wins it. But, you know, they just have an inspirational thing. They never give up. And it's brilliant and they win. And it's fantastic. Similar sort of thing happens when Chelsea. In other words, they're an ageing team and they just... It's almost like a movie. They just band together because they've got nothing else to lose. And then they, you know, it's almost like Ocean's you know, 17. Chelsea win the Champions League. It's that principle. I mean, and but you then, the, you know, the other t- only other team to win it is United. But they're, you know, under Ferguson, they're a super club once Ferguson leaves. Because that's one of the, the key things. Either you have the financial... What Ferguson gives, gave to United, was... The guarantee of being a super club. Once you took him out, even though you still got the same money, you still got the same owners, the same stadium, the same fans, the same infrastructure, he was the bit that made them a super club. And it obviously what they now need is someone, and they're hoping that Jose is the one that turns them into you know, a super club again. But the thing is, is that what Ferguson did was he created Man United into a super club. You know, it culminates in the treble. But that was when... Man, you were just the only really big clean team in England. They were the only super club. Now, even if you know Jose turns them into a super club again and they're back up to that gold standard level, so are Chelsea and the all the other silver teams are just you know they're all building stadiums 
Everton, Spurs, you know, Arsenal, yeah, Arsenal already have their stadium. But that's it, Liverpool rebuilding. You know, it's going to be that much more competitive. And because you're now getting four, possibly even now five Premier League clubs in Europe, in Champions League, and the fact that they're all peaking at the same time, there's a chance that, you know, in the next couple of years, if Tottenham keep their players, if Klopp stays at Liverpool and they build on what they've got, because they've got some great youth team players coming in, and what Chelsea are doing under Conte, because the managerial talent in England is unbelievable. And that's something that possibly Italian football, even at its peak, never had. So in other words, what you know, if you think that Spain right now has brilliant play top level players at you know the top three and those players are you know probably in some ways have higher perfect have higher levels. So in other words, you know, you're talking about, you know, Ronaldo's, Bales and all the rest of it. Which, if you compare to you know certain parts of the, the even the upper Premier League, they're just not able to compete. So in other words, if if Leicester or any one of our clubs that played in the Champions League this year played Real or Barca, I think they would have lost. You know, just because they're just not quite there. Spurs aren't quite there yet. When they were started the Champions League season off, I think if the Champions League group stages had been in the second half of the season, they'd have done a bit better. But that's the difference. They're not quite there. And there's still bits and pieces, you know, one for 11, they're all really good, but they're still probably, they don't quite have that big game mentality, which is what really separates them. In other words, you know, if you look at Marcelo's and how many trophies they've won, like Danny Alves, you know, at Barca and Juventus. I think that's pretty much some of the, I think, differences. But I think what it creates is that... The Premier League has a, a depth in that I personally prefer a Premier League where you have one gold standard team and five or six silver clubs than I would following a league with two or three gold standards. Because even because really to win Champions League you need one or two gold standards or possibly three. I mean that's what Spain have, but when you think of their gold standard teams in the sort of modern Champions League era, you've had Valencia get through to finals and you've had Atletico get through to finals. They never won. You know, Villarreal, when they got to a semi, they lost. You know, if I'm saying that Atletico are a gold standard team, but, you know, if Simeone leaves and the, the new manager doesn't do as well, or if they, you know, it doesn't quite work out at the airport stadium, or if they lose a few players. They could. They're so close to dropping out into a silver team. It, you know, that's it. You know, in the same way that Ferguson was what kept Man United as a gold standard team, Simeone is the same. So I think it's when the Premier League, basically the Premier League, is on peaks and troughs with European football. And I think, as I've said, next two three years, I think the English teams are going to do a lot better because in certain elements, Real Madrid are aging a bit. Barcelona are sort of ageing a bit and it's a lot harder and the pressures of maintaining gold standard <laughs> and especially if you're competing against another gold standard club is very difficult whereby in the Premier League I think the, advan the advantages are is that it's hyper competitive in the top six and the lower down the league because you have the, the clubs in the lower 
parts are still very rich. They're still top 30 in terms of world's biggest clubs. So they, they are trying to kick on in a way that a lot of the mid-table Spanish teams aren't trying to kick on because they just there's not there's nothing in it for them. There's not enough money, not enough prize money, not enough TV money. So in the end, I think the Premier League is the best league, one through twenty, and I think in some ways it is the most exciting league and it has the most options. But there are downsides to it, you know, because the FA hasn't done a particularly brilliant job of organising and structuralising the advantages that English football have in terms of how deep the football league pyramid goes, how many professional teams they have, you know, how competitive those divisions are. In terms of you know, the championship is the fifth fifth or fourth biggest European league in terms of wage bills, in terms of, you know, attendance, and in terms of the actual infrastructure, the stadiums that they have. You know, essentially, you know, what you have, which probably no other European league has, is all of their the big teams being strong. You know, it goes down as far as seven. You know, Everton are, are new owners, spending a large large amount of money. Great manager in Coleman, building a new stadium, new training ground. You know, or you know, upgrading. You know, Finch Farm, their current one. Whereby, if you look at Spain, you've got Valencia in all sorts of trouble. You know, Seville possibly going, you know, on a downswing because they've lost, you know, the, the architects. Deportivo, you know, fighting relegation more often than not. If you look at Italy, you've got, you know, a lot of fan anger at, you know, Fiorentina. They're just not, and, you know, Lazio have had a lot of, you know, they fight, you know, more years, some years they're in mid-table. You had the two Milan teams not do particularly well. They're, they're, a lot of those clubs are rebuilding or they're just not able to reach that level. You know, you've had Napoli a few years ago. They were relegated. They've only just come back. So there's a lot more fluctuations in Italian football. And if you look, you've had Marseille do particularly badly in France. You've had Monaco get relegated. Whereby in England, you've got the whole situation where, and you've had in Scotland, Rangers have fallen off the face of the earth, Hearts and Hibs got relegated. Whereby in England, you're probably the only outfit that you could say that is a truly big club that isn't in the Premier League or isn't successfully kicking on is Leeds. And that's, you know, a financial catastrophe. But even then, you know, the first league year they were down in the playoffs, they got to the final, if they'd beaten Watford. Might be a completely different story, but they're but now they're so far behind. It's you know, they're a generation away from getting back to where they were in the late nineties, early two thousands. And the other club you probably mention is Newcastle, but even then their stadium in turn and the fact that they're now back in the Premier League. In other words, the Premier League allows you more scope because of the money and everything else and the competitiveness of, of the Championship and all the rest of it because you have teams like Villa. Leeds, Forest, Derby, huge teams with, you know, the infrastructure of Premier League clubs. Nowhere close to getting out of the championship because it is so competitive. So what England allows is you've got more scope. You you know, that, there's a reason why Tottenham aren't going for the Europa League. There's a, a reason why, you know, Zaha is just signed a, he's going to sign a contract extension at Palace. There is just the money that comes into the Premier League and the interest that is still there allows you 
to have a more competitive league one through seven, where you have a situation where you know Southampton might sack their manager because they finish ninth. Because we all know it's not. If you think about it, they got through to a cup final, you know, nearly got qualified in Europe, you know. But they underperformed. There was a chance that they could have gone up to seventh and qualified for the Europa League because. It's not just that they're just happy to be there. It's because they know that because of the youth structure, because of the money that they can raise by selling people, and because of the market and the model that they have, they really do have a chance at it. Whereby you wouldn't say that if, you know, I suppose what's the equivalent of Southampton and Italy? You maybe say Sassuolo. But they're just happy to qualify for the Europa League because deep down inside they know that sooner or later... The Milan Giants. You've got the two Rome clubs. Now, you've got Juve. You've, to an extent, you've got Fiorentina. And eventually they will, you know, because of their ownership, because of there's now a structure with which to get back up there. Because Monaco have shown it. Dortmund have shown it. PSG. Those, you know, even Atletico. There's a way. In other words, it does include, for a lot of time, foreign ownership, a huge amount of money, and infrastructure spending, none of which are available to Sassouli, but is available to Southampton, and the Premier League's you know financial model allows them the potential to do it, to say, actually, we should be competing with Inter in Europa League level, not just be happy to play them, but actually, we should have done better, we should have qualified out of that Europa League group, which they should have done. So there's, there's more possibilities. What it doesn't allow for is you can't have... That's why there's no league in Europe that has four gold standard teams. Because you just... The way how it works, it doesn't work. You can't have those teams be that big because you can't have more than two or three Leviathans. Because just the, there's not enough trophies, there's not enough you know power, basically. Which leaves... I suppose to to conclude, what it leads to is is that I think it, a lot of it depends on what Pep does and what Man City does because you you can envisage a world in which if Man United and Mourinho get it right that they could go back to being a gold standard club then you know they're not so far away. And all of the, 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 the big things that Man City have ticked off, so, you know, youth structure, stadium, money, manager, players, they, they've all done that. And they've had elements of Champions League support. So, and the way how they're spending, they're not just trying to, you know, by signing a £34 million goalkeeper, by spending, you know, 40 plus million on, you know, Bernardo Silva, they're basically underlying that they want, they are going to be on the gold standard the same at the same sort of level as PSG at least within the year. So, could the Premier League be the first division that ends up with four gold standard? Because in the end, what's happening is by having all of these gold standard teams, and teams are desperately trying to become gold standard. What that means is is that. What will change will have to be the Champions League because you're going to have to find a way to make a compelling structure that allows us to get interested in these gold standard teams all playing against each other. 
because what we're not interested at the moment is the, the quarterfinals of the Champions League because for the most part you know who's going to be in it. So more often than not, you've got Real, Barca, yeah, Bayern, you know, PSG, and the, the storylines are getting a bit staged. So you might have the odd new team, so you might have a Monaco one year, Dalton the next year, you've had a Leicester, and there's usually one or two English clubs, but more highest, you know, more well-known English clubs. So you might have a City, United, Chelsea. So eventually what they will have to do is find a, a structure for the Champions League to bring us back to what was originally why people wanted to watch European football, which was, I wonder if our boys can beat their boys. And I think it will probably be more like a, a cup competition with some form of league attached. I, I don't know. I, I'm not a futurologist in that sense. But what I think the Premier League model in terms of the revenue sharing and the excitement and the international hype that it has produced in terms of having six great teams all playing at the same time, all competing almost down to the last game, you know, for Champions League, for the titles and for bits and pieces like that. And the storylines that that creates is the model. So it basically allows you for the team out of nowhere, which is what, you know, would have in the 70s and 80s, where you might have a style Bucharest win the title, where you had in 91 Red Star Belgrade, you know, that sort of principle, which is what Leicester it encapsulated. And what you have is the ability to create six really high-spec teams, all with great managers, all competing for a limited number of spots, which is what this Premier League season was. But at the same time, still having enough teams at the bottom who or mid-table or lower mid-table who were able to compete, who were able to, to win and win big, and to believe that they had a, that if they did, so in other words, if Southampton, like Southampton, with terms of, we know if we focus on our youth system, are you know, buying players from, you know, let's say Celtic, we can develop a team that has the potential to break into that top seven. And that's what is Everton, why they're building a new stadium, because they believe that if they, you know, the ownership, if they put the right money in, the right, Managed, they have a way of competing, which is not what ha what's happening in Italy, Spain, France. Because the only way these that happens is when you have a major international tournament and a couple billion is spent on stadiums. So really, yes, the Premier League isn't the greatest league in the world in terms of the great players because they will tend to gravitate towards gold standard teams, upper end gold standard teams. So you're talking about Real, Barca. Which makes sense because they have the money and the level of success that is monolithic, which you cannot get in the Premier League. But what those goal-stand teams are doing is showing the weakness of the Champions League structure at the moment. What the Champions League really needs to do to get regather, I think, the love and interest is to be more like the Premier League, where you have a, there's a bit more parity. There still is gold standard, there still is a large silver, but there's opportunities that so you can have games like Palace when they beat Arsenal 3-0, when they went and beat Chelsea away, and yes, it was a surprise, but not really, because they had players in Townsend, Benteke and Zahar, who have that potential, 
who, you know, because Palace are strong enough in their own sense, because, you know, Townsend, you know, had runs at Spurs, but eventually, you know, ends up at Palace. You know, Zaha was at United, Benteke was at Liverpool. Play people who on their day could clearly play for Liverpool that level, but they're there because they, th- you know, Palace had the money to buy them, so they've spent quite a bit of money on all, you know, three of those players to an extent, and because they believe that they can compete, you know, on on any given day, and that they, if they get their cards right, if the right manager comes on the right system, like what Spurs have done. So in other words, Spurs have built a new stadium, and that's what Palace are thinking about expanding their stadium. Where would you know? Could it be Selhurst Park? Could it be somewhere else? Because if we can get the money, because we're in Croydon, you know, on the outskirts of Croydon where there's all these great players, that if we got five or six of them all at the same age, we could then be a Leicester. Which is what you don't get in the other European leagues, and which is what you're going to need in the Champions League. The Champions League will always be great because there's great teams, gold standard, and the great players, but it's the structure, and it needs to either be FA Cup level, you know, it all happens tonight, or it has to be more like the league structure, but with the parity that actually gives hopes to the, the teams at the bottom that they're there not just to make up the numbers. So I think to you know, finally conclude, I, I think it is. Premier League is the global league with all of the attendant features of that. And in some ways it is the best league in the world because it's appeal, which is what eventually the Champions League needs to replicate. Why? Because that thing is, it's not, it's not the football. So in other words, it's not, it's not some, you know, Real Madrid and Barcelona are the two best teams in the world, but that doesn't make La Liga the best league in the world. What it does is it means that La Liga can facilitate two of the best gold standard football teams and one of the outer end of gold standard in Atletico. It can't do much more than that. The only other silver team they have is, you know, Seville. Sevilla. What the Premier League offers you is, it may offer you, at any given point, one or possibly two Gold Star teams, but it allows you for seven Silver teams, possibly eight. And then if you look at the it's Italy and Germany, they barely have, you know, you, you'd probably say possibly... Dortmund are a silver gold team, but they could be silver very quickly if things don't turn out right. <laughs> Obviously, Bayern are gold start, Juve gold start. Look at the success Roma have had in Europe in recent years. They're silver. The Premier League gives you the options for m- any one of those top six or seven could become a gold. With the stadiums, with the money, with the managers and the talent that the Premier League is unearthing. Yeah, it, it, it's the best league in the world for what you want it to do, which is creating interest, creating storylines, and the element, even if it doesn't always take place, that what you're watching could lead to something, that could lead to a Leicester, that could lead to even a, a West Ham trying to get into Europe and champion and believing. So, yeah, I would say that in conclusion, the Premier League is the best league in the world. 
because it's not it's not going to give you a Real or a Barca or clubs with those sort of players in but what it gives you what what the Premier League has given is a global it's, it's just the Premier League isn't giving you what you necessarily want as a fan so in other words it's not giving you multiple champions leagues it's not giving you youth team players for England it's not guaranteeing that the English national team are going to be brilliant what the Premier League is giving you is the entertainment and excitement and the storylines that no other league can give you. In other words, and you've got no other league with the infrastructure spending that the Premier League has had in terms of you know getting great managers in, which is what the Italian League never, Serie A never did during its heyday. You know, it's not giving that the the, the global pool that the Premier League has. So in the end, yes, it's not giving you what you necessarily want, but if it what, then why are you watching? Is the the end answer to to the question? Is that if it, you are so dissatisfied, then you're not watching the, the county championship, you're not watching Serie A, you're not watching the Guinness Premier League, and the rest of the world is not watching these other sort of trope, you know, gold standard teams in their leagues which they're dominating. What they're watching is the Premier League, because what it signifies and what it offers as a product and as a structure and as a system, it is much more enjoyable because it has more teams, it has more history, and there's more sense that actually you can, if you are sprite enough, smart enough, you can grow into needing a 60,000-seat stadium. You can, in fact, get into the Champions League and you can compete with your gold standard team. So that's Liverpool, Spurs are competing with City, United and Chelsea, you know, and even Arsenal, even Everton, even West Ham to an extent, even though they shouldn't be because they're just, you know, they don't, they're nowhere near as powerful or as rich. But the Premier League gives you their chance. And if you do it, you can. You can get to a quarterfinal if you're Spurs. You can win it if you're Liverpool, which no other league in Europe gives you is that you can finish fourth and win a Champions League. Thanks a lot.